There are a lot of statistics out in the world about recycling and what we do with our waste. For example, every year, 8 million metric tons of plastics enter our oceans on top of the estimated 150 million metric tons that are already there. That's like dumping one New York City garbage truck full of plastic into the ocean every minute of every day for an entire year. With numbers like that, it's easy to feel discouraged and feel like your own actions won't make a difference. But that's just not true. By being a better recycler, you can not only reduce the amount of plastics and waste being dumped in our oceans, you can also have the potential to help create jobs, reduce the use of fossil fuels, and have a huge economic impact. This episode is a little different than normal. It's focused less on one person's adventure and more on how all of us can improve our own recycling habits and reduce our waste. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Back in April, when I was at an event learning about Igloo's re-cool biodegradable cooler, I met a woman named Helen Lohman. Helen's the president and CEO of Keep America Beautiful, an organization that's been around since 1953. They inspire and educate people to take action to improve and beautify their own communities. They have a bunch of different programs and initiatives focused on ending littering, improving recycling, beautifying communities, and they even lead events like plogging, which is basically picking up litter while jogging. Helen has had quite an amazing career herself. Before asking her to break down some of the biggest myths about recycling and giving us tips on how to do it right, I wanted to find out how she got to where she is today. How do you become the head honcho of an organization like this? It helps that Helen had over 20 years of leadership experience in international diplomacy and development, and she worked directly for President Obama. But Helen's career actually started as a volunteer for one of my favorite organizations, the Peace Corps. Let's start with your background, because you worked for the president, Obama, and you worked for the Peace Corps. So let's start with your background in Peace Corps, because I think that's such an interesting organization that allows you to travel. I have a lot of friends who did it, and their lives have become so impacted by their work in the Peace Corps. Most um, returned Peace Corps volunteers will tell you that it was a huge factor in how they chose to live their life. And that was definitely uh, the case for me. I, you know, I grew up in this tiny little town in the middle of Texas. And so going away to the Peace Corps in Thailand as a volunteer was so eye-opening and life-changing. It was it was incredible. And I just fell in love with the organization and with what they do. And so I ended up coming back to Peace Corps as staff rather than a volunteer. And I was a country director in China and Mongolia And then when President Obama was elected, I was fortunate enough to be asked by his administration to come back to the Peace Corps as regional director for all of our operations in Europe, Northern Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. And then I also was asked to lead some kind of innovative changes in how Peace Corps recruits and places their volunteers. Maybe just tell us a little bit about what you did with Obama. 
I mean, you know, he's the president, so I I, I didn't interact with him often. So you guys didn't play basketball? <laughs> we didn't, oh. no. <laughs> no. So you're really hoping um, for a good story there. Okay. <laughs> right. So every president has thousands of appointees. And, um, you know, I was one of his appointees. So the government, the federal government has civil servants, and then they have um, appointees that come in to serve the president when they're elected. And so um, there are certain positions in the federal government that a president is allowed to fill with their own people. And so, yeah, when, when he was elected, I was fortunate to be asked by the White House to interview for this job. And because I I already had a lot of experience with Peace Corps, uh, I didn't have the kind of learning curve that maybe some other people might have had because I had been a volunteer and I had been in the field as a civil servant. So I I was one of these people that was both uh, a civil servant in the federal government as well as, as a political appointee. I remember you told us this story when Obama left office. You know, this is not not a really political podcast, but but I think this is really important. When Obama left, he had a meeting with all of his appointees. It might have been on inauguration day of our current president. And he gave you guys some advice and left you with a message. And I'd love for you to tell that story. So the, this is the day of um, of Trump's inauguration. And when the inauguration was over, they invited all the appointees to go out to this military base to basically say goodbye. And, yeah, at the very end, I mean, his message to all of his appointees is, you know, now it's your time. I've done what I can do. And it's up to you to to carry our message and um, our mission forward. You could have done kind of anything after after he left office, but you decided to go to Keep America Beautiful. I did. And um, I, you know, I had a recruiter call me and um, ask if this was a job I would be interested in because I had been in kind of the international development world for a really long time. And I said, you know, actually, I really would be interested in that because I started my career in Texas decades ago working for the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality doing environmental education and recycling and awareness about environmental issues and so i said i, I would love i would love to to talk to them about that and i also really felt like you know climate change and i mean there's just so much that we need to do in this space and so i felt like this is an organization that, I mean, Keep America Beautiful is 66 years old. They're an iconic legacy American nonprofit. And um, I, I felt like there was so much opportunity to increase their impact and to build uh, across the United States a greater, you know, a difference, more of a difference. And um, I, I thought it would be really exciting to lead that. I remember Keep America Beautiful as a, as a little kid. I mean, it, it was like there was this giant don't litter campaign. Can you just tell us a little bit about the mission of Keep America Beautiful and, and what it is? is? Is it a nonprofit or is it an NGO? So we're a nonprofit. Yep. And our mission is to empower and educate individuals to keep their communities clean, green and beautiful. So we're really just, I mean, I'm, you know, I work at the, at, at the headquarters office. We have 600 and, and 
you know, let's say 30 growing every day, affiliate communities across the United States that implement our mission on the ground. So in so those 630 affiliates are either they're they're either nonprofits of their own or they are embedded in their local governments. And they do things like um, litter cleanups, recycling education in schools. They plant trees. They make sure that their communities have open spaces and green spaces for people to enjoy. So it really is very grassroots. In addition to that, we have, through those affiliates, we have about 5 million volunteers and participants that are a part of the program. So it's an incredible movement, really. But the, the heart of it is that it's local. I like to say that it's, it's, a, it's a local program with global impact. Recycling isn't as easy as it sounds. You have to know what can be recycled and what cannot be recycled. Does a plastic lid stay on or get thrown in the trash? How thoroughly do we need to wash that can? For most of us, we put our plastic bottle or our salsa jar or our brown paper bag into the recycling bin. We don't really think about what happens after that. Where does it go? How does it get broken down? And who pays for it? There's a lot of wild info out there. I asked Helen to help me break down some of the biggest myths behind recycling. I mean, there are a lot of myths. So a couple that I'll I'll focus on. I mean, the probably the biggest myth about recycling is that you can, you know, you magically put it in the blue bin or whatever color your bin is uh, for recycling, and it it it's all taken care of. And it really takes uh, more than that. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people in the United States that that believe it's it's the same everywhere, and it's not. Recycling is not a national program. It's a very local program. So every community may have a different recycling program. So for example, there are communities where you can put glass in your recycling bin. And there's there's communities that don't accept glass. What's really important is that each and every individual takes the time to know what can and can't go into their bin in their community because it's all different and it's very local. So what happens if you don't know what's going on? Because like I live in a condo complex and there's just recycling, like recycling bins down in, in the laundry room that nobody uses, but you know, there's a, there's a dumpster and recycling bins and people just throw, I mean, it's atrocious. People have like plastic bags with their recycling in them. And it drives us nuts. Terrible. We're like, really? (laughs) Or they just don't clean stuff or they'll put their like dirty paper towels in there. And you're like, nobody's going to use that. Yeah. 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 I mean, what's important is that um, as a community, you know, your your condo association finds out from the people who pick up their recycling. So whoever it is that that your condo building is contracted with as their recycling processor, that you reach out to that company and say, look, we want to do a better job recycling. What is it that we're allowed to put in our recycling bin? And then educate every single person in your building on that. 
Um, and that's really, honestly, that is what it takes because the issue of, we call it wish cycling or, you know, aspirational recycling. This, you know, what the, what happens is, you know, everybody is so hopeful that everything can be recycled and it can't. You know, there are things that just can't be recycled in every community. And so what happens is, let's say a dirty pizza box or a bag, a plastic bag gets put in that recycling that recycling is then contaminated, and it contaminates the entire load of recycling. So all the people who've done it right are now, you know, what they've done is not is not recyclable. That load is not recyclable because it's contaminated. So it's really important that as a community we learn what is accepted in your condo building or in your town or in your office, and then those things are really strictly adhered to. What are some other myths about recycling? So one is that what goes in, not everything gets recycled. Yeah. And I think this idea that, you know, if I move from, uh, you know, New York to Los Angeles, I still can put the same things. The same things are recyclable. They're not. You know, it is you really have to. and, And if that little chasing arrow is on that bottle, that it's recyclable. And that's not the case either. You know, those those little chasing arrows don't necessarily mean that that thing can be recycled in that community. Even things like the the lids on plastic bottles. You know, is it lid on or is it lid off? How do you know? Well, you need to ask. You know, you need to ask your local community or whoever picks up your recycling. Usually a good bet is lid on, but just to be sure, it's always a good idea to to contact whoever it is that's picking up your recycling and and asking them. It has to be very costly to recycle heavier goods than lighter goods. I've always wondered what happens with glass. So glass is heavy, and that is part of the reason why it can be hard to recycle. Recycling is a commodity. So it's, you know, it's sold on on the market. And there's times when the markets are really good and there's times when the markets are not. And markets go up and markets go down. So sometimes, you know, in the history of recycling, there's been, you know, you can make money on on recycling depending on on supply and demand. And then there's other times when there's no market for it. And and also each individual type of recycling is is a different commodity. So glass goes up and down and the cost of transferring it from your house to the recycling facility to you know the plant, all those factors have to come into play. And so it can be um, more expensive than other products. So while we're on glass, we used to just go get a Coke bottle at a restaurant, drink the Coke, put it back in the bin, and Coke would fill that bottle back up. You were saying that like people today, when you recycle glass and it gets mixed in, people don't like to have glass that's dirty. Well, yeah, that's sort of, it's interesting because that's not just the case with glass. I mean, the, there's a real marketing issue with, you know, a, a recycled content container that has food in it. And the, there's a mental challenge with people of, well, 
if it's not, you know, perfectly clear and it's not perfectly clean and, you know, then then is it is it is it really okay? And the fact is, it is, you know, it's highly regulated. And and in order to close the loop on recycling in the world, we have to, as consumers, demand products that contain recycled content that so that the loop is closed because if if we don't do that as consumers then then there won't be any market for those recycled goods so for example if you buy a bottle that's made from virgin plastic or virgin glass or any any material and we don't then demand that the next bottle we buy have recycled content in it it, it won't work. And so as consumers, I think mentally we just need to, to realize that, that these things are, are, are highly regulated. And even if they have food in them, they're clean. And, and, um, and, and we need to, to look for them. As consumers, we have to demand better the brands we buy from. We hear a lot these days about voting with our dollars, and it's true. We should be spending our money with companies who are doing work to make an impact on the environment positively. When we come back, hear how the recycling process has changed recently and how you can improve your own recycling practice. I love renting things. I love renting movies. I love renting books. I love that I can get a lot more than I would if I bought them and they don't take up room in my house. Well, guess what? Now you can rent your outdoor gear at REI. That's right. Now when you want to get outside, you can just rent the gear you need and you don't have to figure out where to build that gear shed. So next time your super outdoorsy friend or you want to get outside, don't panic if you don't have the gear you need. Just go to REI, tell them the situation, and they'll get you set up. You can learn more at rei.com forward slash rentals and find out which stores it's available at. Renting stuff is awesome. REI now has you covered for all of your outdoor rental needs. Just go to rei.com forward slash rentals. When I think about recycling, I always think about those glass Coke bottles I mentioned in my conversation with Helen. You drink from them at a restaurant, give them back to the restaurant, they'd get cleaned and then refilled. Why doesn't everything else just work that simply? Well, recycling isn't that easy. It's a process and there's a major industry behind it and it's one that's always changing. How has recycling changed in the last year? And maybe you can explain this, but I've read that China used to take a lot of our recycled goods and now they don't. So maybe you can explain that to us and then explain how that's changed a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So China used to purchase a huge amount of not all of it, but a huge amount of our recycling. And basically they said, you know what? We have our own environmental problems to take care of, and we feel like the percent of contamination that's being sold to us from the United States in the recycling is too high. And in order for us not to basically have to sort through it again, 
we need to reduce the amount of contamination. So if if the United States can reduce the amount of contamination in their recycling, then we're willing to purchase it. So it, it isn't as if they just said, sorry, no, we don't want any more of your, your recycling. They said, you know, we want it. We just want it to be clean. And then we'll buy it. So that's been a real challenge for for the United States because most towns have what's called single-stream recycling. And single-stream recycling is when you put everything in one bin. It's not separated at the curb. So it used to be, I don't know if you, rem- you remember this, but it used to be we had to sort everything, right? We had a bin for paper. We had a bin for you know, aluminum. And in order to get Americans to recycle, the idea was, well, if we can have them put it all in one bin and then we'll sort it at at the at the, you know, recycling facility, then we'll get more people to recycle in the United States. And and it did work, but the cost was that it just had a lot of contamination in it. And China was willing to buy that from us for a while. But, you know, I I have to give the Chinese some credit here in realizing that they have their own environmental issues and challenges. And they said, you know what, we've got it. We've got to take care of of the problems we have. And and so until you can uh, solve your contamination problem, we can't buy your recycling. Why can't we have stricter laws about about throwing the wrong things in the wrong bins. Like I remember when I lived in this town called Raglan, New Zealand, there is zero waste town. And the guy, the trash guy knocked on our door because there was like a drop of tomato sauce at the bottom of a can. It was like, you have to watch this out. And he like pretty much reprimanded Johnny and I. And I was like, this is awesome. And he educated me on it. And I was very thankful. And uh-huh. they explained how recycling works in their, in their community and, and they've solved the problem. But that's because, you know, there was a check and a balance. There's not, at least not in my town, nobody cares, nobody knows if you throw the wrong thing in. And it's just that single bin. Can we go back to those three bins? We could, but it would be really, really hard. So that kind of change. Why? Is it space? It's not. It's just a change in behavior, you know, and it, it, the recycling rates were really, really low when people had to separate. Um, I mean, we could go back to it, but it would probably reduce the amount of recycling. And, you know, at a time when we really actually need it to increase, you know, there's a lot of, of corporations that produce goods that are making these uh, incredible goals on closing the loop and using recycled content in their products and they need us to recycle in order to meet their goals, in order to close the loop. And so by going back to curbside sorting, it would be, I think it would probably be harmful in the long run to go back to that. So the best thing is just to continue to try and educate the public on what can and can't go in that bin. And there's a great saying in the recycling world which is, when in doubt, leave it out. And the idea being that if you're not sure, 100% sure, that the thing you have in your hand is recyclable in your community, then put it in the trash. So what about 
there's a big community of people who recycle and they're, they're called informal trash pickers. Oftentimes they're homeless people in our communities who take out recyclables out of the trash can. It happens in our community. We're a beach community and people will come and they'll pick out all the bottles, aluminum cans after like the 4th of July or a big holiday. And then they'll take them and, and they'll try and sell them. And in Buenos Aires and in, in a couple of cities, I'm sure around the country, they said that there's informal trash pickers that the city is now paying them a wage for collecting recyclables. Do we have anything like that in the United States? Actually, we do. Okay, um, cool. And so there's 10 states in the United States that are bottle bill states. And so those bottles and cans actually have a value. And there's many times when I've been in New York City and I've seen, you know, folks along the streets opening up. You know, the, the bottles are in clear plastic on the curb and and I've seen them going going through to pick out the bottles and cans that have a value and then taking them in to get to get the refunds. That's only there's only 10 states in the United States that have those bottle bills. And so it's generally you see that kind of thing in states where there's a refund. Yeah, I mean, in, in in Buenos Aires, it said these people are unionized and they're seeking formal acknowledgement. So that's like a little bit of a step up, but that seems like that could be really interesting. I guess it's expensive to recycle. It's the bottom line. At the end of the day, there's huge value in these items. I mean, that's the thing that I think, because it sits right next to your trash, you know, there's this this thought that, that it has no value. But plastic is actually made from oil. And, you know, what we pay to put in our car, I mean, if you think of it in terms of like, what does a a gallon of oil cost, then you kind of begin to think, oh, well, actually, this, there's some value to this. The same with paper, you know, papers made from trees. Trees have to be planted. They have to be, I mean, there's like, there's a value to all of these things. Glass is made from sand. So when you think about where it comes from, then you begin to realize, oh, okay, there is real money tied to this stuff. And that's, I think, what we forget when we're trying to to figure out whether or not we should recycle. So what can we actually do? What can you do? I often feel helpless when it comes to making a dent in the amount of plastics and trash in the ocean, or even when I see something in the recycling bin that I know shouldn't be there. Helen offers concrete tips for us to improve our recycling practices. Is there advice that you can give to us on, you know, if we're out, we don't have a reusable water bottle or reusable utensils, reusable container, reusable bag? What should we do? It's a great question. You know, I mean, there is a hierarchy in this. And, you know, it's the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. Uh, so the most important, the R that has the biggest impact is reduce. The second is reuse. So anything you can use more than once, that has the next impact level. And then the final one is recycling. So you know, you don't 
necessarily have to choose between those three materials, between aluminum, plastic, or glass. You just need to know if it's recyclable in your community. So, like I said, in some communities, glass is not recyclable. If you choose glass and you put it in a recycling bin in a community that doesn't accept glass, then you're not helping. And you should definitely, you know, choose aluminum or plastic. You know, I ideally, don't forget your bottle. <laughs> but those bottles, like if you lose them and they go in the landfill, those things seem almost worse because I feel like they're never going to biodegrade, ever. Well, if you've reused it multiple times, the idea of buying a reusable bottle is that you continue to reuse it. For the rest of your life, yeah. I need to stop leaving mine. I'm always forgetting mine. And the other day I heard, or I read an interview there's this woman, I, I don't know where she lives, I think she lives in New York City, who basically did, she made her own life zero waste, right? Yeah. And she had a, like a jar, a glass jar. And for a year, all the trash she created fit into this jar. And I heard her interviewed the other day and she said, you know, if we can remember our keys and our wallet when we walk out the door, we can remember our water bottle and our coffee cup. And I thought to myself, you know what? She's right. There's no excuse. No, there's not. I mean, I think these zero waste individuals are so awesome. There was a woman I met in New Zealand who went a year with zero waste. It was incredible. We interviewed this guy, Rob Greenfield, who goes zero waste for months at a time. He's living off the land right now. Yeah, I know. I, I don't know him personally, but I've I've read his stuff. He's great. So I think like when you're at the store and you're ordering a coffee, like I just try to get a mug for here. And if I want a straw, I'm like, no, I just don't need a straw. Like it's buying a reusable straw just seems dumb. Just don't use a straw. <laughs> Drink like an adult. Sorry. I know there's a lot of companies that sell straws and I love straws, but like maybe you just don't need them. I think this reduce and reuse has gotten a little lost. How can we bring that back to the forefront. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I I think that, you know, remembering that there's actually three R's, there's not just one, <laughs> and that those, the reduce, reuse, are really the, the places that have the most impact. Um, that's where we can make a huge difference. And recycling doesn't, you know, there's going to be recycling. We, we need recycling. And it works. And we need it in order to close the loop. But we also need to reduce how much how much stuff we have. I mean, I just, you know, we all have so much stuff. <laughs> so, so it seems like if we can just be conscious of that and be aware and, you know, have our water bottle or our refillable coffee cup and be really, really aware and conscious of using those things. So the main tips and takeaways about recycling is learn about it, clean it. <laughs> Anything else? You know, the, the other thing I would just add is that I think that we also tend to focus our recycling in the kitchen. But there is recycling in the bathroom, you know, when you go to work in your office, make sure there's recycling. You're recycling there. I mean, the amount of paper in an office, all of that could be recycled. In public spaces, I mean, that's really what we focus on is making sure that people on the go have access to recycling bins in public spaces so that they have the option. They're not having to throw, you know, their fast food drink cup 
in a trash bin, but they have the option of if it is recyclable, they can put it in a recycling bin. Or if they have a bottle of water that they picked up at the local 7-Eleven, that they can have a place to recycle it. And so that's a huge focus for us, um, parks and street corners and, and things like that. When you say we can just find out in our community about recycling, I mean, where, where can we find more about recycling as a whole? Um, a lot of places, actually. So, you know, I mean, we have on our website, uh, which is kab.org, we have a lot of information about recycling. berecycled.org is another one of our websites that focuses solely on recycling. If you want more information about your own local community and what is recycled there, go to your municipal government website. And there's probably information on your local government's website on what specifically can be recycled in your community. What if we want to get, you know, beyond our own home life bathroom? How can we get even more involved with places like Keep America Beautiful or other organizations? Well, we're always, I mean, like I said, we have 5 million uh, volunteers and participants across the country that have local events in their own communities. So it's not like people have to go far. We do our affiliates. You know, you can go to kab.org and we have a place where you can look up your own affiliate or your nearest group. They do litter cleanups, beach cleanups. They uh, plant trees. They do all sorts of stuff and they need volunteers. You know, so anytime a person wants to become involved, there is a way to be involved in this movement. I asked Helen for her biggest gems of wisdom for how to make an impact. She said, educate yourself and don't litter. She said litter is still a huge problem in this country. She told me 80% of what's in the ocean started on land and it's much further inland than the beach or the beach parking lot. Talking with Helen gave me some great ideas on how I can step up my own recycling game, like talking to people in my condo complex and just checking out what the recycling requirements actually are in my own area. What about you? How will you take your recycling prowess to the next level? I'd really love to hear what you're doing to make an impact. Tag me on Instagram or Facebook at Wild Ideas Worth Living and I'll share them out. I can always use more ideas to up my own recycling game. If you want to get involved, you can visit Keep America Beautiful, that's K-A-B dot org, or you can go plogging, picking up litter while jogging, an activity that comes from Sweden where it's actually called Proko Oop. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Well, anyways, Keep America Beautiful is doing a plogging event in Houston, Texas on November 16th. You can go to their website for more event details, K-A-B dot org. Thank you so much to Helen Lohman for sharing all this information with us and for doing the work you do. It's people like you who are making a real impact on our planet. This podcast is produced by REI with help from Annie Fassler and Chelsea Davis. As always, I appreciate when you subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen. Send us those recycling ideas on Instagram at Wild Ideas Worth Living and write a review on this show. While you're at it, tell a friend or a hundred friends because that's what keeps this show going. And remember, wherever you are, some of the best adventures often happen 
when you follow your wildest ideas.